You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. Research for the Real World. Hi, I'm Emily McLeod and I'm a PhD researcher at IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. This is my first time presenting on the podcast and it's really great to be here. In this season of Research for the Real World, we're exploring the ways in which socially relevant research can be translated into policy and practice by IOE researchers to help tackle challenges on a global scale. In this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Professor Lynn Ang and Dr. Jessica Massonnier. Lynn is a Professor of Early Childhood and Pro-Director and Vice Dean of Research at the IOE. Her research centres on international early years policy. Lynn is interested in the social, cultural and policy influences on children's development and early learning in a range of formal and informal contexts such as preschools and home-based settings. She has worked internationally in several countries and led on research projects with major funders such as the British Academy, UNICEF, and the UK Economic and Social Research Council. She's also recently been named Principal Fellow of the Higher Education Academy. We're also joined today by Dr. Jessica Massonnier. Jessica is a research fellow working across the Department of Psychology and Human Development from the Department of Learning and Leadership at the IOE. Her research focuses on understanding how we can best help children to thrive by considering the influence of the home and classroom environments on children's learning and development. Jessica is particularly interested in how educational neuroscience can inform education practice, and she collaborates with educators and policymakers to gain insight into how research can inform their work. Hello, Lynn and Jessica. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having us. So it's great to have you both here today. Thank you for coming on. And you both work together on the Action Against Stunting Research Project. And I'm really keen to know more about that work. But first, it would be great to get to know you both a bit more. I'll start with you, Lynn. How did you become involved in education? And can you tell us a bit more about your own experience at university and how you got to be where you are now? Thank you very much, Emily. I have been involved in education for many years now, I would say over 20 years. And I started my career as a kindergarten and primary school teacher where I trained and qualified as a a teacher. And I then pursued a master's degree, following which I was very fortunate to be awarded a scholarship to do my PhD. And this subsequently led to a career in academia as a lecturer and now professor. Now, throughout my career, I've been always very interested in education. And I think I've been very fortunate to be in a career that I absolutely enjoy. And I've been always interested in particularly around young children's learning and education during the early years. I think the early years is such an interesting and important phase of human development because that age group from two to four years before formal schooling and education and leading up to primary schooling. I think these are such an important phase of life because these are the foundational formative years where development is rapidly changing 
and learning takes place in so many different forms and in different contexts. And I just think it's fascinating how children learn and the role that we adults can play to facilitate and support their learning. So much so that, you know, I've made it my life's work. And what really motivates me as a researcher and educator is the passion, a passion for supporting learning and finding ways of creating learning opportunities, especially for children and families who perhaps may not have the same opportunities in life that others may have. And thinking back about, you know, thinking back to those early years in my career, when I was working as a teacher, I taught in a variety of early year settings and, and schools, including government funded schools in some social economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. And some of these classes were considerably large of over 40 children of mixed ability. And the challenge for me as a teacher was catering to the different levels of learning in the classroom. And what really struck me was that there were some children who were sometimes perceived as perhaps not achieving or lagging behind in attainment, not because they could not learn or they had learning needs, but because they for various reasons, they just did not perform well enough in a particular test or assessment. And their socioeconomic circumstances did not allow them the same social or learning opportunities as their peers outside of school. But however, in many other ways, these children were absolutely achieving and thriving. And they were certainly very bright and able and very much engaged and enjoy being in school. And school then became a very important social an intellectual space for them where they could learn about life and also interact with their peers. So this experience very much instilled in me the importance of creating opportunities for children to learn and to build on their innate competence in ways that are positive and empowering. And I think it's important to focus on what children can do rather than what they cannot do. And I have seen firsthand the power of education as a leverage to improve life chances. And I, I saw that as my responsibility as a teacher, above all, to create those learning opportunities for the children to thrive, you know, to scaffold their learning and also to bring out the best in each child and make them feel valued and empowered as learners. So I hope in a small way, I've made a difference in the lives of the children I have worked with. And I should say, you know, a special moment for me is recently being awarded Principal Fellow of the Higher Education Academy. And this was in recognition of my work in higher education and the field of early childhood education. I had a somewhat non-traditional route in my career, starting as a trained primary school teacher and then moving into academia as a professor. And I'm just delighted and honoured to achieve the award. And this has absolutely reinforced my passion and commitment to applying research and evidence-based approaches to enhancing the access to and quality of education for children and learners across the levels. Congratulations on being awarded Principal Fellow of the Higher Education Academy. That's a real achievement. And thank you, because as someone who was a teacher myself and now being at the early stages of my own research career, it's really interesting to hear how you've worked like with that theme of education running through everything. So Jessica, how about you? How did you become involved in working in education? Thank you, Emily. I will start by talking a bit about my experience as a primary school pupil, because it's a bit of a circle from being a pupil myself to then working with schools uh, in research. And I've been very lucky because when I was young, I liked school, especially primary school. And 
I basically grew up in uh, the suburbs of Paris. So it was quite a small city. We had a lot of fields and we had a small school. So we had strong connections between pupils. We knew each other a lot. And my teachers were following project-based approaches. So I learned about gardening, about journal editing, theater production. When I look back at it now with adult eyes and also with my perspective and background in psychology, I feel very grateful for this experience because, as Lynn said, the primary school years are really fundamental to learn core skills. So that's when we learn to write, to read, to communicate. So we plant the seeds for future growth. So that was a positive experience. I will skip the teenage years. <laughs> they were different. <laughs> and at university, I studied psychology and I decided to specialize in, in child development because I'm quite amazed at children, basically, and I believe there is everything in a child, everything you might want to study or you're curious about exists in a child, but on a very authentic level. So they have so many opportunities, they have a lot of possibilities in front of them, and I'm amazed by their enthusiasm, their curiosity, and also at how much they learn, basically. So I worked with several institutions, I had placement in schools, I had placement in research laboratories. And I decided to contribute to research with the overall aim of finding out how we can best support children. I think that as adults, we have a duty of care, of protection and of assistance towards children. So research offers this space where we can reflect on the opportunities we provide to children and on how best we can support them. Over the years, I consolidated my expertise in psychology but I always kept a broad approach to studying child development and the learning environment. I work with collaborators within departments of education and also with departments of psychology, because I believe psychology can really inform educational approaches and support teacher training. So I've led several teacher training workshops in France, but I really see myself as a facilitator to create synergies between research and education, not as someone who would deliver knowledge per se, because the teachers know their job better than I do, but really as a role facilitator to create projects and communicate on things that alone we couldn't do. Thanks, Jessica. And your primary school experience sounds absolutely lovely. <laughs> really, really lovely experience with lots of project-based learning. And you work together on this current research project, Action Against Stunting. I'd like to know more about that. But firstly, what is stunting and why are you working on addressing this issue, Lynn? So child stunting is one of the most complex and entrenched global challenges. Stunting refers to the impediment of a children's or rather of a child's physical growth and development. And it's a result of severe malnutrition, poor diet, and inadequate health provision. It is also, I think, an outcome of wider structural inequalities, such as poverty, social and economic inequalities, and a basic lack of basic infrastructure, such as poor sanitation and hygiene. Now, it is estimated that stunting impacts about more than 100 million children worldwide. So this, I think, gives us an indication of the scale of the challenge that we are facing as a global community. The World Health Assembly in 2012 recognised that stunting was one of the most significant impediments to human development, and they made a resolve to decrease the number of children under five who were stunted by 40% by 2025. So as a global challenge, stunting reaches across eight of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals 
including poverty, hunger, gender inequity, and poor quality education. So it is a really wicked, intractable problem that I think all of us in the global south and the global north have a responsibility to address. And this is why the work that we do within the stunting project is so important. In terms of child development, stunting is associated with suboptimal social, cognitive and motor development. So it means that the children, they don't develop as well as they could. And over time, this can lead to greater difficulties. So if you look at the evidence about how best to intervene, current research indicates that it's important to have integrated approaches where we provide appropriate nutrition, but also stimulations that involve the caregivers, so it could be the parents, family members, the educators, so to adopt a holistic approach of child development. But basically, overall, providing appropriate resources to facilitate children's development is really a global educational and social challenge, and it really fits within international objectives, and we all have a role to play in that. Absolutely. I I must admit, I wasn't familiar with the term stunting before, but it's clearly an important issue and something that, as you say, is influenced by wider global challenges and can also contribute it and and make those challenges worse. But that must make stunting a really difficult issue to tackle. So what are the aims of your research project and how are you working to achieve them? So the Action Against Stunting Research Hub the large, larger team that we're working with is a major international project that brings together researchers from 18 institutions worldwide. It is a project that is funded by the UK Research and Innovation Global Challenges Research Fund. And the research hub has an, an ambitious aim, which is to reduce child stunting across communities, particularly in India, Indonesia and Senegal, And these are communities where stunting has been known to be a prevalent challenge. And we are working very closely with researchers across these countries on the project. The overall aim of the research is to take a holistic approach to understanding the child, which I think is really important because we need to see children holistically, not from the perspective of just one domain, which is, you know, for instance, only education or only from a biological perspective. We need to see the child as a, you know, the whole ecology of where children develop and how they grow. So the aim of the research is to take this holistic approach and to investigate the wider biological, social, environmental and also behavioural context in which stunting occurs in order to identify and also better understand how the different factors, those constellation of factors can come together and interact to prevent, improve, or even reverse some of the key features of stunting. So our project team at the IOE leads the education and cognition work stream, and we work very closely with the lead institution, the London International Development Centre, and the overall hub lead, Professor Claire Havenham, to deliver this important five-year project. And I'm very pleased to also now introduce my colleagues, you know, Professor Julie Dockwell, Dr. Bernie Munoz, and of course, Jessica on the call here with me. We are a great team that works together very closely on this project. And a key aim of the work that we do is to profile young children's early development and the early learning environments in the three countries. We have identified a sample of settings and participants in each study site where we will be exploring different cognitive domains of children's development, for instance, language, social skills, cognition, as well as a whole range of earliest environments such as the home and earliest centres. And our aim is to investigate 
the cognitive profile, the learning needs, the learning environments, as well as the educational opportunities of stunted and non-stunted children. And Jessica will be able to also share further details of the project. So perhaps I can give a bit more details about the cohorts of children we work with. By cohorts, I mean groups of children. So we work with two groups of children that are being involved in the research by our country partners in India, Indonesia, and Senegal. So with the first cohort, we work with more than 500 children in each country, and we will follow them from their birth to their second birthday. And when they reach one year of age and two years of age, we will measure three dimensions of their development. So the first one is their motricity, what they can do with their body. Second one is their language, so how, how they communicate and what they understand. And the third one is their cognitive skills. So it means how they perceive objects, how they solve problems, how they solve puzzles, for example. So that's for the observations we will do with the children themselves. We will also observe their home environment. So a team of researchers in each country will visit the home of, the, of these children and have a look at the physical organization of the environment, at the interactions between the caregiver and the children. And these really aim at better understanding how the children develop and also in which context and where we could provide support. The second group of children we're working with consists in children of preschool age, so between three and five years of age. And this is important because a lot of research has focused on the first two years of age. So with the, the cohort of preschool children, basically, we also observe their development, again, uh, their motricity, their language, their numeracy, because they are having this preschool experience. So we can talk about early numeracy at this stage and their socio-emotional development. So the, how they interpret emotions, how um, they can deal with social situations, very like practical aspects of their everyday life. And this time we will observe not only their home environment, if they are staying at home, but also their preschool environment. And for that, we use a classroom observation tool, which is called the MELE. So MELE is an acronym and it stands for Measuring Early Learning Environments. So it aims to measure early learning environments. So we'll be able to really observe the preschool settings in each country. And we will also gain teachers' views in these settings by the means of a qualitative teacher interview, which is led by our colleague, Dr. René Munoz. So I hope it gives you a, a flavour of the, the details of the study. Yeah, it's clearly such a far-reaching international project with lots of on-the-ground research happening. But that does make me wonder how the last two years have been for this work. So how has the research been impacted by the pandemic? So like many areas of life and work, the pandemic has certainly had an impact on our work. For instance, the project timeline was delayed. We were not able to start the fieldwork as we had planned. And for the first phase of the project, we were going to profile early years environments. And this meant being into the field in the settings to observe the activities and interactions of the children and teachers. But of course, with the pandemic and many early years and educational settings closed, and particularly at the last year at the height of the pandemic, when countries were at different stages of lockdown, we had to delay the fieldwork. So I, it's not been an easy 
situation for anyone having to work under the conditions of a pandemic. And we all know the situation is still unpredictable. But thankfully, we have now recently started the fieldwork and we have been able to pilot some of the work that we are doing in terms of observing the settings and piloting some of the tools that we have adapted in Indonesia and Senegal. So we are doing well and catching up with the timeline and doing all we can to resume the fieldwork. Yes, and I should add to that that really it's been impressive to see the resilience and the proactive attitude of all of our colleagues because we all know that it's been a difficult year, you know, and uh, sometimes it was difficult to access the internet. We had, you know, emergencies due to the COVID pandemic. And I was really impressed by everyone staying on board and regularly meeting and sharing updates, you know. All of our meeting with the Indian, Indonesian and Senegalese team start with how is it going for you and what time is it in your country because we have big time delays. So that was really, really impressive, I think. It's really great to hear that you've been able to get things going a bit more recently. And yes, that commitment of researchers all around the world. Now that it's going more properly, what do you find most interesting about the project? Well, I think the research itself, of course, is so interesting and absolutely fascinating. And as a scientific interdisciplinary area of work that draws upon several disciplines, such as biology, social and behavioural sciences, cognition, as well as education, that bringing together of the world's leading expertise to come together to solve a global challenge, I think is just so interesting and simply phenomenal. And what is really exciting is thinking about what we can achieve collectively as an interdisciplinary team and the impact that we can make with our research. But of course, apart from the research itself, I think what is most interesting is the potential to advance knowledge in the field in terms of the learning and knowledge that we are constantly gaining in our work with our country partners, learning from our country colleagues in Senegal, India and Indonesia, learning about different country contexts, the different languages, the educational contexts, the different values and culture of education and also the research expertise, the very rich research expertise that we learn from and each other, and also about the diversity of early childhood provision and systems from a different perspective. And I think, you know, for me, it has really been a true p- privilege to be working with the team and all our partners across the countries. And I found that, you know, I'm finding that really interesting. And I would say this is perhaps the most interesting aspect of the project, and it shows the impact of what we can achieve not only by doing research together, but by learning from each other. Yes, and I would join in by in saying that a fascinating aspect of the project is really to work across cultures, which always prompts me to keep my eyes open, to keep my ears open, and to question any assumption that I might have, because I've lived in two Western societies for most of my life, in France and in the UK, and, and that's important to reflect on that as well. One thing that I found really interesting as well is to engage with educational experts and stakeholders in each country and that's because of my background I'm always really interested in translational research and within this project I've led two fellowships which complemented the original Action Against Stunting grant and these two fellowships were awarded by UCL so they are called the Listen and Learn grants and the IOE Early Career Impact Fellowship. And I will briefly describe each of them to give you an idea of how 
it really symbolized and allowed us to further engage with external stakeholders on the project. So the IOE Early Care Impact Fellowship gave us extra funding to create an infographic which synthesized the methods we've used to provide early childhood education systems in India, Indonesia and Senegal. And we have also created one infographic per country to have a visual about the different types of learning environment that children can experience between the age of three and five, basically. And that was great to work on that because it was really an iterative process where we did a documentary analysis to learn more about the educational systems. We obviously had long discussions with our colleagues and allies with a graphic designer to provide a visual summary of what we found because it was complex. So it was easier to have a visual summary that we could share and then revise. So that was really iterative. And I've been very grateful that our graphic designer has also been very flexible to implement several iterations. And in this process of having a systematic protocol to review early childhood education systems, I convened a panel of NGO representatives because that was important to incorporate their views about what features of early childhood education systems influence children's learning experience. So in this process, we also involved NGO uh, members. So that was a great learning curve. Now the second grant, so the Listen and Learn uh, grant, consisted in facilitating conversations between our colleagues in each countryside and uh, external educational stakeholders. So basically meaning teachers, school directors, people involved in the monitoring of education in each country. And this conversation really went insightful because we learned about their views on the diversity of early childhood education settings in each country, different types of preschools that exist. We learn more about what they mean by educational quality. And really, I'm thinking about the conversation we had in Senegal, where uh, we had very different views about the importance of nutrition that was really highlighted, because you cannot learn with an empty stomach, so nutrition is really one of the bases to talk about learning. We talked about the inclusion of children with special needs, we talked about the interactions with the teachers and the, the facilities that exist in schools. It's really great to hear how you're all learning from different cultures the whole time. Um, and it sounds like a, a lot of different skills and, and people involved in, in the research, which makes for a really exciting uh, and interesting project. Looking ahead a bit more longer term, what changes in policy and practice do you hope that the project will contribute to? I think research is only ever meaningful if it can make an impact and make a real difference to the lives of the communities and participants which we are serving, whether is it through changes in practice or in policy. So we very much hope that our research will help inform different groups of stakeholders from policymakers to practitioners and the teachers who have to make important decisions that would shape and influence the kind of educational provision and opportunities that young children will experience, and also their role in informing decisions about the kinds of interventions that will be taken up at policy level to improve children's educational outcomes. So to give an example, a key component of our project is measuring development and assessing the quality of learning environments. It is vital, it is so important to get this right. At the start of our project, our colleague Dr Munoz led a systematic review in consultation with our country colleagues to identify the tools that we could use 
for assessing development environments across the countries. Then once we identified the tools, we developed a protocol to ensure the tools are adapted, validated, piloted, and the assessments undertaken are reliable. And also alongside this, we had to ensure that the training conducted for the researchers and the enumerators that were going out in the field in using these tools are systematic and comprehensive and they were very well trained. And there needs to be a good training in place and a high rate of inter-rater reliability before the tools can actually be used or applied. So this process of adaptation, validation and training takes time. And we also face challenges along the way. I mentioned before, you know, some of the COVID challenges, but also challenges in terms of understanding the diversity of early childhood context and the range of settings across the countries. So that was very important for us to take time to be able to implement the tools in a robust way. And it has taken us almost a year to plan and implement the first phase of the research. But by doing this in a methodical and evidence-based way, we will be able to ensure that the research we are doing is as reliable as it can be and of high quality, and we can be confident that the findings will be robust and be able to contribute to policy and practice in a much more informed and evidence-based way. Thank you, Lynn. And I would like to add that in our process of adapting the measures to provide children's development and their learning environment, we involved colleagues and experts from various disciplines. And it was also important to get their view to validate the, the measures were relevant for the country context and that they were suitable because several of the measures uh, were developed in Western context. So we really validated with people from each country that the tools were relevant for them. And I will take the example of the, the MELID, our classroom observation tool, because each country really went to the process of convening a panel with the listening and conversations of educational experts and teachers. And it was important to get their view as to whether what we were observing in the classroom corresponds to what they define as educational quality, because that's really a proof check of the ecological validity of the measure and also as a way to start building longer-term partnerships about how these tools can be used for the research, but also as a formative tools for the development of teachers, teacher training. So these conversations are starting now because this is all about uh, developing meaningful measures. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, uh, that's what our podcast is all about. Research for the real world, using education research to impact and improve policy and practice on the ground. So thank you. It's been really great to learn more about the Action Against Stenting project. Uh, before we go, thinking ahead, what's next for you both? Thank you, Emily. So we are in midpoint, I would say, of the project at the moment. And the main field work is just starting. It is a crucial time but also a very exciting time for us as a team. We are currently in the midst of completing a series of intensive training. We will continue to work with our partners to prepare the necessary tools and measures for implementation. Personally, I'm very much hoping that the COVID situation will ease and we will also be able to travel to the study sites to meet with our country partners in person, visit the settings and actually be there physically to undertake the fieldwork with our country teams. Now, that, I think, would be very exciting. So I'm really very much looking forward to it. Fingers crossed. 
absolutely. Yeah, this is very exciting. And we, we had the chance to see videos and pictures of the schools. And that's really uh, exciting. Good luck to both of you with it all. Lynn, Jessica, it's been really interesting talking with you and learning more about your work. I've learned a lot about your international research and the issues it's addressing. And it's also been great to learn a bit more about your careers too. So thank you both for coming on. Thank you very much for having us and to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you, Emily. You can follow Lynn on Twitter at L underscore Ang one and Jessica at Jess underscore Masso, M-A-S-S-O, to learn more about their research. Some of what we've covered today is also available in the episode notes. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to find out more, we have our archive of 12 past seasons available for you to listen to. Search IOE Podcasts from wherever you get your podcasts to find episodes from seasons 1 to 12 of Research for the Real World, as well as more podcasts from the IOE. I'm Emily. Thanks for listening. Research for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications and IOE Research Development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagan is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 